0: If you enjoy this show, you will enjoy the new novel Alice Isn't Dead, a standalone, complete reimagining of this story. It's out now. Find it wherever you encounter books or at aliceisntdead.com. Hi, this is Joseph Fink. What you're about to hear is the live Alice Isn't Dead performance at the Largo in Los Angeles on April 5th, 2018. This live episode was not any material from the podcast, but instead was a standalone show focused on the weird and interesting sights and places of LA. It was an incredible night, and thank you to those who came out to see it. Enjoy the show.
1: Oh. I'm sorry. I, um, I didn't expect, um... I I didn't know that anybody would be listening. Okay. Um, When you tell a story, you should expect an audience, but sometimes I don't think about that. I just tell the story the same way I breathe, just move life in and out of my body. I suppose you can listen if you want. My name is Keisha. I'm a truck driver. It's weird, isn't it, that the way that we say our jobs as though they were an identity rather than a thing we do for money? I mean, do you think that outside of capitalism we'd confuse our self-image with what pays the bills? <laughs> Sorry, I, I got away from myself. Story, not polemic, right. I became a truck driver because... Well, that, that's a long one. I thought my wife, Alice, was dead, but she isn't dead. She's out there somewhere on the highways and back roads, and I'm trying to find her. Just driving my truck around and around looking for her. That's who I am, really. I am the one that looks for Alice, and Alice is the one who isn't dead but isn't here. I was in Los Angeles. All downtowns are the same downtown. They're landscapes built for the facilitation of money and business without thought to the human experience. We are tiny to these monuments and that we are allowed to pass among them is a privilege, not a right still, each downtown bears some mark of its city. The LA downtown, despite surface similarities, could not be mistaken for New York or Chicago. It's too eclectic. It's too strange in its architecture. I mean, LA is, is much more than movies, but movies infuse everything because movies are the only history the city will acknowledge. The history of the indigenous people, the history of the Latino people, these are set aside. The city looked at all the people that had already come and thought, ah, a blank slate. And so they did not draw from the Gabrielino or the Chumash or even the Spanish and their missions. They drew from the movies, from the foundational idea that L.A. could and should be anywhere in the world. So the style of LA is every style, each house in each neighborhood built in wildly different ways. This is Art Deco and Spanish Stucco and mid-century modern. In Brand Park, out in Glendale, there's this enormous house turned public library that is less actual Middle Eastern and more movie Middle Eastern, built by the wealthy white man whose garden that park once was. There's nowhere in L.A. that feels stylistically of one piece, and it is that incoherence that provides the coherence of the city. You see, I've come to town on your word, Alice. Only it wasn't your word direct, of course, just whispers through a network of safe houses and gatekeepers, those living on the fringe of society who can be trusted with the kinds of messages we send back and forth. But who knows how the messages mutate mouth to mouth? But still, even through this mutilation of intent, I can hear your voice like a heartbeat through skin and bone. It's Tanya in Omaha a friend of the cause, who reaches out to me on my radio to finally lay your words to rest. There's a meeting in Los Angeles, you've heard. You don't know the exact nature and purpose of this meeting, no one seems to, but the word is that it's a meeting of those at the heart of it, the ones that are making the real choices, that shape every decision that we think we freely make. And so I've come to town to find that meeting, I will find this meeting and then... Shit, I don't know. And then I will decide what to do next. I'm faced with a mystery that's so much bigger than myself that it sits like an uneven weight in my chest. I feel off-balance, so I take comfort in smaller mysteries, ones that don't matter at all. In Pico Robertson, a five-minute walk from six different synagogues and a celebrity chef kosher Mexican restaurant called mexi is a strange synagogue with no windows. The architecture is unmistakable. Modern LA, L.A. Jewish has a certain look and this place has it, right down to the arches designed to look like the two tablets of the commandments. Except this synagogue is several stories tall and with no visible entrance. What does it mean to blend in? What what does it mean to, to disguise? What does it mean to stick out? These are intrinsically Jewish questions. A people that has, throughout over a thousand years of oppression, variously done all three. In this way, too, the building is very Jewish. Of course, it is not a synagogue. It is, in fact, 40 oil wells, hidden inside a soundproofed structure designed to look like a synagogue. And it is not the only one. Just five minutes down the road is an office building with no doors and no windows. That one is 50 wells. The machinery of our system is not hidden below us. It is disguised among us. Rocks that are actually utility boxes. Trees that are cell towers. That vacant house that we walk by day after day, the one with the opaque windows actually a maintenance entrance for the metro. Which buildings are real and which ones are disguises? I mean, it doesn't matter, I suppose. But that's what makes me enjoy considering it. Sylvia's here, too. She's Really come a long way from the teenage runaway I first discovered on the side of a highway. Did you tell her about the secret meeting, Alice? She is both more vulnerable and far braver than either of us. Did you send her to this place? (laughs) Well, we we reunited on one of the vacant cul-de-sacs near LAX, where neighborhoods that had once been in the airport's buffer zone were now demolished. Hey ya," Sylvia said, as though we were meeting at the Continental breakfast at a hotel, not on a dark, empty street after months of not seeing each other. <laughs> "Hey yourself," I said. "Why did you come?" She shrugged, performed nonchalance. Same reason as you, I guess. Well, then I guess neither of us knew because I had no idea why I was there. I didn't even know who was meeting in this town. Let's start with that. Okay, what what organization, what secret brotherhood, what ancient cabal that influences world events is now sitting around the table in some sterile backroom of this sunny, thirsty city? I could have asked Sylvia what she knew about it, but I didn't felt like I would be following a script you gave to me, Alice, and I am not interested in your dictating my actions. So instead, I asked her, how you been? And she took a long, slow breath that was more answer than words could ever be. I've been good, she said. You know, trying my best, finding places to sleep finding a friendly face on the other side of a meal. She shrugged. I guess it's the same struggle for everyone, but those of us who live on the road, everything is amplified, you know? I do know. God damn it, I I wasn't even sure where in the region this meeting might be held. So I drove out east to the desert where the mountains looked like set backdrops, unreal and perfect, taking up half the sky. Palm Springs, the town killed by cheap plane tickets. Why drive two hours from the city for the weekend when it's possible to weekend in Honolulu or Costa Rica instead? Then, having died, Palm Springs hung on just long enough for everything dated about it to become vintage cool. Now it's back. A mid-century modern paradise of steel beams and rock balls and that style of beautiful but featureless wooden security fence that only exists in Southern California. Old motels not updated since the heyday of the 50s now were converted to hip resorts with farm-to-table food and upscaled tiki bars. The city is an Instagram feed, which is both snark and compliment because it is a genuinely beautiful place. I wandered the town, feeling that there was something worth finding there but unsure where it would be hidden. I visited Elvis's honeymoon hideaway. A garish airplane of a house with giant wings of a roof looming at the end of a cul-de-sac, providing kitsch to the dwindling population of Elvis enthusiasts. That house was put on sale for nine million a few years back and is now reduced to an easy four, so make those owners an offer and you too could own a house that is listed as a historical site. A place where Elvis had sex a few times probably doesn't have a dishwasher, though, so... Just south of Cathedral City, I saw a sign that looked familiar. It's this huge neon pink elephant, mouth wide and mid-laugh, splashing herself. A pink elephant car wash. The sign has a twin sister in Seattle. That one is famous. It was weird running into her in the desert, too. It was like driving through the suburbs and suddenly finding out that 150 years ago, they also built an Eiffel Tower in Pomona. I stopped the car and I just gawked up at her. It made me so happy. And then, looking down from the sign, the horror came to me. I saw someone walking towards me with a shuffle that I recognized. Like their legs had no muscle or bone but were heavy sacks of meat attached to their body. One dead leg thrust forward after another and as the man came close he looked up and I went from dread suspicion to horrible certainty. He's one of those creatures that I call thistlemen, sagging human faces hung limply off skulls that are the wrong shape. Yellow teeth, yellow eyes. They are serial murderers haunting the back roads of our highway systems, and one of them was here. He made eye contact with me. He laughed, a sound like hanging knives clattering together, and then he was gone. The neon elephant's face no longer seemed friendly. I mean, it too seemed to be laughing. Sylvia and I, we we split up for the day. We just watched the traffic of people looking for suspicious crowds, folks that don't fit in with the tourists and the beautiful people working as baristas just for now. of course we don't know what those suspicious crowds would even look like gray men in gray suits going grayly about the tedious business of running the world. Or, like the Thistle Men, monsters of hideous aspect. I reached out to my friend Lynn, who works as a dispatcher at my trucking company. She and I became friends soon after I started. She doesn't take shit, I don't give shit, we get along that way. Any unusual movements in Los Angeles, I said? strange shipments, unusual routings, anything? You know I can't tell you that, she said. What if I said, please, I said. She snorted into the phone. Oh, in that case, sure, she said. I always like you when you're polite. Let me see what I can find. Sylvia and I saw nothing of note that day. We ate together at a Korean barbecue place built into the dome of what had once been a restaurant shaped like a hat. This is nice, she said towards the end of the dinner. It was. It really was. You know, a a city is defined by its people, but it's haunted by its ruins. There are no cities without vacant lots, the skeletons of buildings, ample evidence of disaster and failure. Our eyes slide past them because they tell a different story about our city than the one we want to hear. A story in which all of this could slip away in a moment. Even though we know this fact is true even more for Los Angeles than most cities. This city will someday be shaken to the ground, or burned, or covered over with mud, or drowned by the rising sea, or strangled by drought. The question is, as it is for each of us in our personal lives, not if it will die, but how. I like to go and look at these broken places where the refuse of recent history shows. It allows me to look at a region differently, maybe see what I was missing, and if a secret meeting was going to be hidden here, where but in the cracks. So I peer in search. Above the Pacific Coast Highway and the hills of Malibu that are so beautiful when they aren't falling or burning is what remains of a house. The house was a mansion built in the 50s and burned in the 80s when its location finally caught up to it. There's now a popular hike that goes right into the ruins so any walker can go see this place where people lived as recently as 30 years ago. A ruin shouldn't be so new. A Roman home destroyed by a volcano. Well, okay, you know. A medieval castle, sure. Even an old stone settler's hut, a 100 years old. All right, okay, that makes sense. But a house that once held a television and a shower? <clears throat> Feels wrong to walk on the foundation, stepping over the bases of walls and around the chimney. It was a home not so long ago. And now it is transformed. Transformation is uncomfortable and easily mistaken for an ending. In Griffith Park, I met with Sylvia in the old zoo. All the animal enclosures are still there. And you can sit in them and look at where once caged animals lived. And now, wild animals are free to come and go. Sylvia and I sat in the artificial cave tried to imagine what, what the purpose of this secret meeting was. Sure, generally, the word was out that it was a meeting of those in control in order to further control us, but specifics were, as they often are, lacking. Sylvia asked me, Do you feel like this story's too convenient? And I had no way to respond but nodding. But we still have to look for it, right? She said. I nodded again. As the sun moved behind the hills, it got very cold. She said, yeah. And I said, yeah. And neither one of us meant it. Gentrification comes for us all. Let's leave aside for a moment, the many issues of endangered communities and rocketing prices and consider just two cases of what people will look past to get access to LA property. December 6th, 1959, in the hills just below Griffith Park, a doctor lived with his wife in a mansion with an incredible view. The Christmas tree was up for the season, wrapped gifts underneath. At 4.30 in the morning, the doctor got out of bed, retrieved a ball-peen hammer, and murdered his wife with it. Then he attacked his daughter, though she survived. And then he took a handful of pills and was dead by the time police arrived. That house stood empty ever since, still filled with the family's things. The furniture, the tree with wrapped gifts underneath. A prime house in a prime L.A. area, but who would live in a place where such horror had happened? For 60 years, no one. Well, the house sold for $2.2 million last year, a view of the city just above Los Feliz. Well, at this point, who wouldn't take some hauntings and a terrible bloody past for that? Meanwhile, the Cecil Hotel in Hollywood, site of an inordinate number of murders and suicides, where the Night Stalker lived in the 80s while causing terror across the region, where just a few years back, a body floated in the water tank for days before being discovered, is now the boutique Stay on Main. A rebranding for this rebranded city. Even our murders are getting gentrified. Maybe it's me. I don't know, maybe, maybe I just don't like change. Change is often wonderful. But we should definitely think hard about what we are changing into and what that change might mean. We should just spend a little time thinking about that. Still searching for this meeting, I went up the coast Over the grade and down toward Oxnard, not as cool as Ventura or as rich as Camarillo, Oxnard gets by. As I waited to hear from Lynn, I walked the beach on Silver Strand, just watching the surfers, many even now in the winter. Nothing will keep them out of those frigid Alaskan currents. I headed south to Channel Island Harbor. It was absolutely peaceful on its shore. The ocean is chattering and restless. The harbor sleeps. It does not stir except to send grumbling waves in the wake of the few boats in and out. During my walk, I saw a rowboat, old practically falling apart. Something about the occupants of the rowboat made me look closer stooped figures and awkward postures that looked painful. One of them turned to face me, though the boat was 60 feet offshore, and even at that distance I could see two thistlemen floating in a rowboat in the sound. Hoo! One of them shouted at me in a gentle, high-pitched voice. There was something that looked a lot like a human arm poking out over the rim of the rowboat. I returned to my truck. Not everything is my problem. Worship is a feeling so all-encompassing that it can be easy to misunderstand from the outside. Take the worship of Santa Muerte, a Mexican folk saint of death, likely a legacy of pre-Columbian devotion, dressed in the clothes of the colonizing religion. The church has spent a long time trying to suppress her worship, but of course, the church has never been good at actually suppressing much, and devotion to Santa Muerte has only spread in recent times. Like many figures of death, she represents healing and well-being, Religion often lies in embracing contradiction. Those on the outside, they see this as a weakness, but those on the inside recognize it as strength. The Templo Santa Muerte in Los Angeles is just down on Melrose Avenue, sharing a building, as everything in LA does now, with a weed store. It is a one-room shrine, established by a husband and wife, full of life-sized skeletons bearing scythes, It would be easy, as an outsider, to default to one's own associations with skeletons and come to one's own emotional conclusions, but it is healthier to embrace the contradiction of these symbols of death that, after all, physically hold us up for as long as we live. To deny Santa Muerte is to deny our own bodies. Meanwhile, on the other end of the spectrum, the Bob Baker Marionette Theater carries a different kind of worship. Devotion to a performance style that time has left behind, and the outside of the building is, let's face it, it's creepy. Because, like skeletons, puppets have taken on a certain cultural connotation in the wider world. But we should try to see it from the inside mm? as the earnest expression of performance and joy. Mm-mm. Nope, I can't. Mm-mm. I j- not with puppets. Skeletons, fine. Loose skin monsters from whatever world. Well, I've dealt with them, but puppets? Mm -mm. (laughs) Mm-mm. Lynn got back to me. You didn't hear this from me, she said. Well, that goes without saying, I said. No, it doesn't, she responded, because I just told you that. Now, there have been some shipments that don't belong to any company or the company info is missing from them, I can't understand what I'm looking at. They certainly don't hold up to any scrutiny at all, so I don't think that they were expecting scrutiny. These things stand out so bad that they might as well be big red arrows pointing at a location in Los Angeles. It was late afternoon. Sylvia was asleep in the back of the truck's cab. I lowered my voice. Where? She told me... I looked at Sylvia, knowing she would want me to wake her up, to take her with me, but I didn't. I let her sleep. I went alone. better that one of us survive. I went where Lynn told me, up La Cienega, past a mall and a hospital. I came to the address she gave me, an unassuming place, If it weren't for the brightly lit sign, I might not have even spotted it from the street. I went through the gates. There's a courtyard there, deserted. The air was still and there was no sound, but the stillness felt temporary, like the pause after an act of violence before anyone can get over their shock and react. I continued through the doors, Not the grand hall I might have expected for a meeting like this, but a cozy place, rows of theater seats, a stage draped in red curtains from which a speaker stood addressing the crowd. There was music, was that music, or was it the shifting and squirming of inhuman bodies? Because there was something inhuman in this place, I could feel it. Not the people in the seats, they seemed completely human. Looking up at the person speaking, following the narrative, and slowly having information dawn on them. In fact, the people in the seats did not at all seem like the kind of people I would expect at a meeting like this. Were these the powerful? The wicked? Were these the unseen hands ushering us to disaster? Looks can be deceiving. Everything can be deceiving up to and including the truth, but no, I did not think that these were monsters. and thought they were people like me. People lured to this spot for the same reason I had been, because the story of the meeting had been a very good story. It played exactly into how I had thought the world works. It fed my suspicions, and it led me to this place. And I think the same was true for every person in that room. They were there, like I was there, looking for a good story. But why were they led there? Hmm? If the meeting itself was a decoy, then what was the true purpose of this moment? And that's when I saw it. Lingering in the shadows at the edges of the crowd. Men with faces that sagged, flesh that peeled, yellow teeth, yellow eyes. Thistle men ringed the crowd. Wolves to sheep, hawks to bunnies, hunters. in their seats notice did they look into the shadows and see the inhuman eyes peering back at them did they smell the breath of the thistle men like mildew like soil a smell of rot from deep within cold lungs did they hear the occasional laugh coming from a gurgling broken throat did they look beside them at seats that were empty and think but wasn't someone here just moments ago or was there Surely there wasn't, because where could they have gone? And in the shadows, at the edges of the crowd, the people that had once sat in those seats were led into a place from which they could never return. I understood. A simple plan, tell an irresistible story. A story that is exactly what all of us fighting Thistle might want to hear. That we were right all along that the world really is against us in so simple and easy a way that the culprits could all meet in one room. And we would come to hear that story, and then Thistle would take us. Why hunt when instead they could lure? Standing in the door to that hall of horrors, I saw the faces of the Thistle men as they turned and noticed. One gave a yelp and started to lope towards me, and I fled. Where the courtyard had been empty, it was now packed shoulder to shoulder, full of men with loose faces and eyes that went yellow at the edges and wet lips hiding sharp teeth. They were waiting for the crowd inside, hungry creatures preparing to feed on any person who stepped out of that theater. I pushed into and past them, using their momentary surprise to escape, and I ran until my throat was dry and ragged through that courtyard and out to where the lights of the strip club across the way flashed back and forth, back and forth, and then into my car, and then onto the maze of freeways where it is so easy to disappear. I kept my eye glued on the mirrors, but no one was chasing me. Somewhere behind me, an audience of innocence remained in Thistle's trap. And I wouldn't help them. I couldn't. Instead, I went back to the trunk. Sylvia was still asleep in the cot. I sat in the driver's seat. I was exhausted. The sun had fully set, and I allowed my eyelids to drift downwards. Hey, said Sylvia. She was in the passenger seat, turned sideways towards me. It was light again. I don't know how long I'd slept. I know I didn't dream. There are small mercies in life, I guess. Did you find out anything? Sylvia said. I looked in her eyes. She's so young. It wasn't right and it wasn't fair that she was out here like me on this labyrinth of roads and rest stops. But that's just what it was for her and for me and for so many others. She looked at me with trust and I looked right back and I said I didn't find anything I don't think the meeting is even real let's get out of here Sylvia yawned she stretched, she nodded yeah okay she said might as well too bad this turned out to be nothing too bad, I said. So, now here I am telling the story from just outside of Ashland, Oregon. Los Angeles is hundreds of miles behind me now. It isn't far enough. I love you, Alice. I stayed alive another day. You do the same, okay?
0: So, there is a love story that happened behind the scenes of Welcome to Night Vale, between me, Joseph Fink, and Meg Bashmaner, voice of the Night Vale credits and MC and tour manager for the live Night Vale show. In this memoir, we recount the first ten years of our relationship, year by year, without consulting each other beforehand. It's a funny and romantic story about how differently we experience and remember our lives. Then, on July 20th, the Halloween moon... My first ever novel for ages 10 and up. Esther Gold loves Halloween, until the year that Halloween night just won't end. Even she doesn't want Halloween to last forever. No matter your age, if you're a fan of Alice Isn't Dead, I think you're going to love this book. Get these books wherever you get your books. Thank you to everyone who came out for our Largo show. We will be back in two weeks with chapter one of our third and final season. This show would not be possible without our Patreon supporters, such as the incredible Ethel Morgan, the indomitable Lilith Newman, the victorious Chris Jensen, and the electrifying Melissa Lum. If you would like to join these folks in helping us make this show, please check out patreon.com Alice Isn't Dead, where you can get rewards like director's commentary on every episode, live video streams with the cast and crew, bonus episodes, and more. Thanks for listening and see you soon.
2: Hello, iPod broadcast listeners. My name is Meg, and I am one of the esteemed tri-hosts of the beloved iBroad Good Morning Night Vale. And we've heard from listeners like you about queer representation, Night Vale named pets, major theories, minor questions, and of course, best and worst practices for um, alternative spa therapy services. If you know, you know. Check out Good Morning Night Vale every other Thursday, wherever you get your eye broads, eye casts, iCasts, podbroads and Podcasts. I think I like podbroads the best. I'm a real PodBrod myself.